We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Kaiser, who is an interventional cardiologist and the Assistant Chief of Cardiology of Permanente Medicine East Bay, which includes the Oakland and Richmond Medical Centers. Dr. Kaiser has been part of the extensive team preparing the medical centers for and taking on an unprecedented pandemic. Dr. Kaiser has been treating COVID-19 positive patients with heart conditions since the first cases were reported in the Bay Area. Needless to say, the past months have brought quite a change to her usual practice. To contain the spread of this highly infectious virus, many appointments have been moved to a virtual setting and a modification of protocols when performing interventional procedures has taken place. Dr. Kaiser is passionate about improving patient care and outcomes for COVID-19 positive patients as we learn more about this virus and management is evolving. Dr. Kaiser was born and raised in Germany and completed her medical training at Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf. Dr. Kaiser has been calling California her home now for the past 15 years. Dr. Kaiser finished her internal medicine residency at Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, serving as chief resident. Her cardiology and interventional cardiology fellowship took place at Kaiser Permanente Los Angeles Medical Center, where she had the honor of being appointed chief fellow. Stephanie, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into some questions about COVID-19 and the heart, maybe you can explain for our audience the difference between a cardiologist and an interventional cardiologist. Oh, of course. So, A cardiologist, basically, after you do your training in internal medicine, which is usually three years, you go on and do three more years of cardiology training. And then um, for an interventional cardiologist, it's actually an additional year of training. And the reason is that the focus is on procedures, basically looking at coronary arteries by entering either from the radial artery or the femoral artery and um, looking at the arteries to see if there are blockages if there's coronary artery disease and potentially placing a stent, little metal mesh tubes in order to keep the artery open. Great. Thank you for clarifying that for everyone. Um, And I'd also like to ask you how the COVID pandemic has affected or changed your work as a cardiologist and interventional cardiologist. We touched on it just very briefly in the bio, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what's really changed these last few months. Yeah, I think it's been very different for everyone. So first of all, I think no one ever thought as a doctor that they would work from home. So um, clinics have been uh, taking place at home. Um, they've been virtual. They've been video visits. And so um, that's very, very different as uh, the setting in the clinic. The other thing is that um, when you go and do procedures, you take very different precautions now. Um, you really want to make sure 
your team is protected and that you also don't necessarily perform procedures in COVID positive patients that are not necessary and um, that you're not putting yourself and the team at risk. Um, we usually as interventional cardiologists aim for um, door to balloon time. We want to open up the acutely blocked vessel. And so that's usually within 90 minutes. So it's ha it has been a little more difficult with taking all of these precautions to meet these um, goals. Got it. Yeah, a lot, a lot of changes across all specialties as a result of this pandemic. Yeah. So I think as I ask you these questions, I may start kind of broadly and then narrow down into some, some more specific questions. But just starting broadly, can you tell us what we know currently about how COVID-19 can affect the heart? And I want to timestamp this here. It's September 8th, 2020. Everything is changing so quickly. I think it's always important to do that. Um, but as we know it today, how is COVID-19 affecting the heart? I think we forget we've only been dealing with it for months now, but we've already learned so many new things. So uh, initially, when COVID-19 surfaced in December 2019 in Wuhan, I think we thought of COVID-19 as a flu-like illness that mainly affects the lungs. And then we fairly quickly realized that this is a disease that affects the whole body, and including the heart. So um, as we know, the causative agent for COVID-19 disease is SARS-CoV-2. And this virus enters the host cells by first binding to the so-called ACE2 receptor, which is short for angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 that is found on cell surfaces in lungs, heart, gut, kidneys, um, blood vessels, and the nervous system, amongst other tissues. And you kind of can think of the virus like a key fitting into a lock, and it uses a spike protein on its surface to latch onto the cells, which start the process of entering the cells. So... Um, cardiac involvement at this point we know is common uh, in patients with COVID-19, specifically in patients with severe COVID-19 disease. Um, currently, there are three proposed mechanisms how COVID disease can affect the heart. So one thought is the marked systemic inflammatory response, also called the cytokine storm, where the body essentially responds out of proportion to the infection leads to dysfunction of the cardiomyocytes, the heart muscle cells, and to cardiac depression. Uh, this is something that has been well described in other inflammatory conditions, such as sepsis. Uh, the other thought is that SARS-CoV-2 can directly infect the heart, leading to immune cell recruitment and inflammation of the heart muscle. There have been some autopsy studies um, which support this, um, and we're still trying to find out more and learn more to get a better grip on this. And finally, the infection with SARS-CoV-2 could impact the very small vessels, the microvasculature, via its effect on the ACE2 receptor. So this could then trigger dysfunction of the small vessels and tissue ischemia, so there's not enough oxygen going to the tissue. And this can lead to dysfunction of the pumping chambers, which we call the ventricles, and it can also cause arrhythmias, abnormal heartbeats. So a whole lot going on there potentially in, yes. in the heart. And so let, let's dive into some of that. Um, we've been seeing a lot of reports in the news about myocarditis. So can you please tell us what myocarditis is and the possible association with COVID-19? Yeah, so myocarditis is essentially inflammation of the heart muscle, and this is most commonly caused by a virus. And this is not only related to COVID-19, but we also see it with other viral illnesses. So overall, in general, myocarditis occurs in about 1% of viral illnesses, and it can, it can affect anyone. It can affect 
um, young adults and children. And then patients with myocarditis may experience symptoms of shortness of breath, chest discomfort, fever, and fatigue. The true number of COVID-19 associated myocarditis is unknown at this point. Um, it is thought to occur due to direct cell injury, kind of like we were just talking about, and or a consequence of the inflammation by the body's aggressive immune response. Um, and also the degree of viral load may play a role in development of myocarditis. Great. And I'd like to kind of dive a little bit into why we care about myocarditis. So can you, you mm -hmm. tell us about the dangers of myocarditis and how long do those dangers last uh, yeah. after the heart inflammation actually occurs? Yeah. So when myocarditis occurs, it can lead to weakening of the heart muscle and this can result in heart failure. Um, it can also affect the conduction system of the heart, again, uh, with a potential for abnormal heartbeats, arrhythmias. In very severe cases, the heart function can deteriorate to a degree uh, that results in something that we call cardiogenic shock, meaning the heart is so weak that it cannot provide the body with adequate blood flow without additional support, such as medications or maybe even use of devices that assist the heart. Currently, experts estimate that half of the cases of myocarditis will re resolve without complication. Um, however, it is quite concerning that in some cases, symptoms can just last for months. And also, according to some reports, up to 7% of deaths from COVID-19 may result from myocarditis. So kind of the big question at this point is, um, what will be the frequency of sp spontaneous recovery or resolution with adequate medical support compared to other viruses that affect the heart? And that's just something we don't know at this point. Right. And, and like many things with this virus, with, with people having ongoing myocarditis that's lasting for a long time, we don't know really what that's going to mean for their long-term yeah. heart health because we don't. Ha this is a novel virus, and we just don't have that experience. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you were talking about you know this with myocarditis, it can lead to heart failure where the, mm -hmm. the heart's not pumping adequately, or you can get arrhythmias. And the concern with arrhythmias is you can have fatal arrhythmias. Correct. Where you, you just correct the heart goes into an abnormal rhythm and essentially stops, and that, and that's why we're really worried about this. And that's why the professional sports leagues are tuned into it. And, and we don't want to be seeing cases yeah. of sudden death, right? Exactly. So Stephanie, can you tell us um, a little bit more about heart failure in patients with COVID-19, both new heart failure, as well as those patients who've already had pre-existing heart failure, and, and then it gets worse as a result of, of this yeah. viral infection? Yeah. So heart failure in patients with COVID-19 may be brought on by the acute illness um, in patients with pre-existing um, known or undiagnosed heart disease. So that can be underlying coronary disease, hypertensive heart disease, meaning heart disease related to high blood pressure. And then heart failure can also occur due to acute injury of the heart, such as a depressed heart function, the setting of the marked inflammatory response. Um, so that's where the pump function is decreased. In earlier stages of COVID-19, when the pulmonary symptoms are most prominent, we also see often heart failure symptoms with preserved pump function of the heart, which we then call diastolic dysfunction. Um, unfortunately, the development of heart failure overall is considered a poor prognostic sign. Um, there was a retrospective study of roughly 800 patients that were hospitalized with COVID-19 in Wuhan, and heart failure was identified as a complication. Almost half of patients who died 
and only in 3% of patients who recovered. And this was despite less than 1% baseline prevalence of chronic heart failure in the combined groups. So seeing heart failure is basically a, a marker for potentially worse disease or poorer outcomes. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. that's accurate. So Stephanie, are you seeing more heart attacks in patients with COVID-19 than you would otherwise expect, um, particularly in hospitalized patients who are sicker and, and who now have more stress on their bodies? Yeah. So the frequency of myocardial injury has found to be variable among hospitalized patients. And some data now suggests that about a third of patients are affected. Um, we do see more so-called type 2 heart attacks um, in COVID-19 patients. And that's basically due to a mismatch of oxygen supply and demand. So um, patients with severe COVID-19 who suffer from high fevers and low oxygen content due to lung disease may need a significant increase in cardiac output, um, and that can lead to this type 2 heart attack. Um, this may more specifically occur in patients who have pre-existing coronary heart disease, obstructive coronary disease, um, where it is uh, reported in roughly 50% of cases. Um, heart attacks due to atherothrombotic disease, so acute occlusions, um, known also as type 1 heart attacks, are less frequent, but a feared complication and convey a markedly poor prognosis in these patients who are disproportionately affected by increased hypocoagulability. And then on top of this, as a complicating factor in COVID-19, we do see cases in which a heart attack in the classical sense is being mimicked, making it difficult to establish the correct diagnosis and treatment. So um, earlier on, there was a case series of 18 patients with COVID-19 who developed ST segment elevation on electrocardiogram, which is a marker for an acute heart attack, basically suggesting an acute blockage and acute occlusion of the coronary artery. And then only 10 of these patients are Actually, 10 of these patients were diagnosed with non-coronary myocardial injury, and that can be related to what we already talked about, myocarditis. We see it with other forms of underlying cardiomyopathy, coronary spasms, or just nonspecific myocardial injury. So you're really seeing multiple different types of, of things going on where you're seeing traditional heart attacks, then you're seeing people's bodies get really stressed and the heart not being able to keep up. and and having heart injury as a result of that. And then, you're, and then COVID-19 is also mimicking heart attacks and showing up as, as other things and kind of muddying the waters and making your job more difficult, much like it's mimicking a lot of different things that we're seeing. Yes, that, that's exactly right. So Stephanie, can you tell us overall how often cardiac disease is seen in patients with COVID infection and whether this rate is affected by severity of illness, such as those who actually require hospitalization as opposed mm -hmm. to those who don't? Yeah. So the American Heart Association quotes about one in three people with COVID-19 have underlying cardiovascular disease. And current evidence supports that patients with underlying coronary artery disease and cardiovascular disease risk factors such as high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes do far worse with COVID-19. Uh, than patients without these chronic conditions. So we know this is a very vulnerable patient group. And we know that this patient group is six times more likely to be hospitalized and 12 times more likely to die. So um, the recommendation for this patient group is therefore to follow strict precautions, um, just like the general public, but really 
keeping an eye on appropriate social distancing, hand washing, and mask wearing. So it's, it's specifically important for this patient population. We don't necessarily think they're more likely to contract this, but we, we think that they definitely have like a potential worse outcome. Right. Yes. I think the data is quite clear on, on that with those underlying health issues. There's been a lot of media coverage about medications such as hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin that, that we've mm-hmm. used to try to tr- prevent or treat COVID-19. And some of that data is even quite murky. But can you tell us about these medications and what yeah. the concerns are from the medical community about their use and the, yes. and the risks to the heart? Yeah. So hydroxychloroquine has been a drug that's been around for a long time, and it's been used to treat other diseases such as malaria. Um, Azithromycin is a macrolide antibiotic, which is commonly used to treat various types of infectious diseases, um, such as pneumonia. Um, There was a small study in France a while back that showed that hydroxychloroquine alone or in combination with uh, azithromycin shortened the time to resolution of viral shedding in COVID-19. So based on this and other promising data, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for these medications uh, in March this year. Um, This has since been revoked. So in June, due to safety concerns and lack of efficacy, um, they decided to not let people use it under these circumstances anymore. And uh, it was just felt that the potential risks outweigh the benefits. Um, the main concern with both of these medications is that they prolong the QT interval, which can lead to fatal arrhythmias. So again, the arrhythmias come into play. And one of the reasons also is that patients with COVID-19 specifically are often found to have already longer baseline QT intervals and have uh, an overall higher potential for developing arrhythmias. Um, there are many pending clinical studies at this point in regards to this matter. Um, but I think in general, we can say currently these drugs should only be used in research settings or under close supervision of experts. And we really need to wait on better data um, to make this a little more clear. Yes, that's a great description of that. And, and really just even boiling it down further is you have a, d- a disease that can cause myocarditis and lead to arrhythmias. And one of the last things you want to do is is give medications that also can lead to arrhythmias, and it just raises the risk that much more, correct? Yes. This next question, Stephanie, I didn't realize that you were originally from Germany when I was prepping this question. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a study from Germany that was recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looking at 100 patients who had recovered from COVID infection And these patients had cardiac MRIs performed. 33 of these 100 patients had been hospitalized, but 67 of the 100 had recovered at home without ever requiring hospitalization. The MRIs revealed cardiac involvement in 78 of the 100 patients and ongoing cardiac inflammation in 60 of the 100, which I was pretty flabbergasted when when I read that. This inflammation and ongoing evidence of cardiac involvement was independent of pre-existing conditions, independent of severity of illness, independent of the overall course of the illness, and also independent of the time from the original diagnosis of COVID infection. So in your mind, what are the implications of these kind of startling findings? 
Yeah, so so this study, as you're already referring to, was done in Germany. It was led by Valentina Puntman, a cardiologist at the University Hospital in Frankfurt. And what is really interesting that the patients in the study were relatively young and healthy, as you already said, and that quite a few of them had actually just returned from ski vacations prior to taking part in this uh, or prior to falling ill and then taking part in the study later. And then two-thirds of the patients had recovered at home, so they really weren't that sick. So the study really raises the concern that even with no typical cardiac symptoms, heart involvement is seen in a large number of patients. And this may indicate that we kind of have to manage these patients differently and also be very mindful that there's heart involvement early, um, even if we don't suspect it, and we may need to take different measures. Um, and this may also explain all of the uh, effects we see in, in patients with healthy hearts that a long time after this, still suffer certain palpitations or chest discomfort. And, and I think we just don't know enough at this point to, to really know where uh, to put this and how to rate this. But um, it's definitely very concerning. Yes, I think you just said it very well that at this point, we just don't know enough. And I think, you know, you hear things in the news or on social media about saying, well, let's just get to herd immunity or you know, get the kids back to school, which at some point we need to do. Um, or you know, you see stories about people going to COVID parties to see who gets infected. You know, college things going on like that. And I think the dangerous thing is we just don't know that much about this. And you know, with this high percentage of people having cardiac involvement, even when their disease is relatively mild, is, is really potentially concerning about how how much long lasting cardiac effects we we might see down the road. We just don't know what's going to happen one year, three years, five years down the road, right? Yeah, that, that's a big concern. And, and there's a rising concern among cardiologists that we could see a significant increase in heart conditions such as heart failure and other chronic conditions over the next years. We, we just don't know um, if um, these effects are transient or permanent. Yes. And I think this next question, I, I, you, you may have already um, kind of answered it, but I'm going to ask it a different way in case there's anything more you want to say mm -hmm. about it. But do we know at this time anything significant about the longer term effects of this COVID-associated heart inflammation that we're seeing? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really something we'll have to watch closely. And, and we, we do know that what we are seeing so far, and just like the MRI study you're pointing out, it's, it's really concerning to us as cardiologists, um, as physicians who take care of heart disease. Yes, this is absolutely going to evolve over the coming months and years. Um, Stephanie, there are reports of NCAA, basically collegiate athletes, being diagnosed with myocarditis at higher rates than is typical. And this is raising concerns about risks of resuming sports. What are your thoughts about this? Also something of, of high concern, and, and as we previously discussed, um, any age group can be affected by myocarditis, and it appears overall um, rates of cardiac injury and myocarditis due to SARS-CoV-2 are higher than with other viral illnesses. I think it's very important to take a conservative approach here, again, with not knowing exactly what we're dealing with and what the long-term consequences are. Um, so that's kind of consistent with the recommendations that have been given um, by the American College of Cardiology and I think also um, and by other associations at this point. 
Right. And this next question that I actually saw it flying around on social media in, in um, physicians groups today. So I'm, I'm glad I had prepped this question, but I want to ask you about what are the recommendations for return to exercise and sports after recovering from COVID-19? And I know some organizations like the American College of Cardiology and other societies do have guidance on this. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about it? So in, in May this year, there were recommendations published in JAMA. And um, at the time, they suggested that athletes who test positive for COVID-19 with no symptoms are just advised to follow CDC recommendations on their period of self-isolation and then slowly return to sports under closed supervision. A little different, the recommendation for athlete with any degree of symptoms who tested positive. So in that setting, cardiac risk stratification was suggested, and this included in this recommendation, an EKG, an echocardiogram, and a high-sensitivity troponin. Um, and then, again, this risk stratification should be performed after uh, the recommended period of self-isolation and resolution of symptoms for 14 days. And then if all tests are normal, then the athlete can proceed with slowly returning um, to sports. But again, under closed supervision. Um, if there are any abnormal findings noted, then basically the myocarditis return to play pathway is invoked. And, and that means that the athlete is out for three to six months and then repeat risk stratification um, prior to return needs to happen. Um, it is a really tough decision to make. And, and I think this is also not the last word spoken. Um, we're lacking data right now. Um, it is expected that over the upcoming months, we also get more data points um, to allow us um, to make a better informed decision on this. Right. And I'm sure these guidelines will evolve as, as we learn more about this disease. But I, I think just even some of these recommendations point to how much of a potential cardiac risk this virus is, because typically somebody returning to um, exercise or an athlete going back to their sport after having a flu or other some other viral illness, they would just return and not have this workup that includes an EKG and an echocardiogram and blood tests, but just be able to go back. And, and then even when you're thinking about three to six months away from a sport for somebody who has more severe illness, you know that, that's potentially an entire season of a collegiate athletes or a professional athlete's career. And you know, that's a tough thing for that athlete to be away from, but ultimately it's about trying to protect their long-term health. Yeah. And that's why I'm hoping we're going to get more data to maybe allow them to return earlier yeah. and still do it in a safe manner. Right. Absolutely. Um, Stephanie, I want to thank you on behalf of this podcast and be on behalf of our audience um, for taking the time out of your evening to do this interview. This is, I've been looking forward to talking about this for quite some time just because the heart implications of this virus are so significant and, and there's just high rates of underlying heart disease out there anyway that, that are impacted by this, by this pandemic and by this virus. So thank you for taking the time and sharing your expertise and walking us through some of this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Absolutely. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm.
Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.